You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. reading guess i got bored hello and welcome to literary treks tfm's local books and comic show and i am so glad to be here and yes you can tell my voice is not quite the same but i'm so glad that his voice that never changes casey is with me oh my voice changes sometimes but yes i uh I- I mentioned you before we started recording. I can't tell that well. So, I mean, you, you still sound <laughs> lovely <That's> to good. <laughs> me. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Uh, well, I'm I'm excited that we're here. Uh, we are going to continue uh, this week with our New Earth series that we've been covering with Rough Trails. Just want to tell everybody, too, thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. And, of course, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on a place like Spotify or Apple Podcasts where you can give us uh, star ratings or on Apple Podcasts where you can give us a review, we'd appreciate that. Uh, you can also find us online, uh, Twitter, TrekFM, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at TrekFM. And then, of course, we've got the Listeners Only Discussion Group you can join and talk to listeners from all over the world. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the website, trek.fm, where you can see all of the shows that we're doing. We've got so much going on in here in the network. And last but not least, I do want to say um, to those of you that have been supporting us on Patreon, we really do appreciate it, uh, especially like our associate producers, Greg Rosier and Casey Pettit. So uh, thank you so much for your hard work in making sure that these shows keep coming to you listeners each and every week. Now, if you want that to continue, yeah, you can, like our associate producers, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you could be part of the team. Uh, every little bit helps. We legitimately, though, we, we could use your support. So because there's no way that we can make this happen without listeners just like you. Uh, it's been a rough couple of years for us. So Please, if you have a moment, go to patreon.com slash trekfm and support us there. Casey, I'm a little disappointed because there's really not any news to talk about. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, normally I enjoy that. There's there's no new comic to review, uh, which is disappointing as well. And uh, so with that disappointment, I don't know, maybe we should hit some rough trails. Let's do it. So this book follows Beltair, and of course, at the end of that book, we smashed a moon into the planet, only half of it surviving, and I wouldn't say necessarily well, and um, it was very interesting to me that this is really a Chekhov-centered book, and in fact, this book probably should have been titled Chekhov and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, because he has a terrible day in this book. This is like Jack Bauer meets Star Trek. Um, Chekhov, Chekhov does not have a good go of things. He's just trying to be a nice guy. He wants to go, you know, have a couple beers with his friends. And it just, it's literally all downhill from, for, for him from there. And, um, I, I will say that that was, uh, one of one of the good things about this book, I think, was um, how much development I feel like that they gave to Chekhov, because he is um, essentially waiting for his transfer to become first officer of the Reliant, 
And it's, you know, big career move for him. And, you know, throughout this whole book, he is uh, facing death with about every page turn that you get. And um, but also showing that he he is the right person to be a first officer of a starship um, from his command decisions, which we never, we really never got to see in, in the original series because he was an ensign. Um, But even once he was in Star Trek, the motion picture, which these stories follow, he's the kind of security or tactical officer. And so this, this, book did a really good job of just highlighting his leadership skills, his ability to command people, and also his willingness to do whatever it takes to get the job done, even if that means potentially sacrificing himself. Yeah, it was interesting reading the book because I was thinking about how many places that Chekhov was making decisions that most likely Kirk would have made. Um, and like you said, very much in the vein of I'm going to do whatever it takes to do the right thing, regardless of the cost to myself. Um, and uh, it was it was really like you said, I, I think this might be one of the best books for this character that I've seen. And um, I'm glad that they did it because I, I'm thinking that maybe the next book we won't have you know check off in it anymore the series because he will be on the reliant so if there was any time to kind of give check off the forefront of a story it really does feel like this was the golden opportunity to to be able to do it and i'm glad that they did because you know this is a character i think that in many ways just kind of gets shoved to the sidelines most of the time even in the books and and of course you know in the movies um I wouldn't say Chekhov even really gets a ton to do. And so I was really thankful that L.A. Graff made him the forefront of this story. And um, this book actually really made me like the character a lot more than I had just because of what you were seeing him do. And I, I just also love that, like, there was this honesty in him, you know, when he he's like, I've had a very bad day. And you do not want to mess with me right now. Um, and, um, you know, he he pulled off a lot of things and a lot of moves, again, that just really harken back to the fact that you can tell that this is a character who's spent all of that time under Kirk and has really picked up a lot of that. Um, and I, I thought it was great. Yeah, I think I, I like what you said there that he 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 spent a lot of time. I mean, he spent a lot of time em- trying to emulate Kirk. I mean, you can almost see in this story how throughout his career under Kirk, he, he has been, um, watching and learning and, and yeah, like you said, this isn't something we've ever really seen on screen from him before. And so I think the, um, the authors did a good job with putting him in those situations that he could handle and still making him it still felt like Chekhov, I guess. It, it Nothing felt out of character for him, even though we're seeing him in situations that we've never seen before and him taking a, a leadership role that we've never seen him, him take before. And even, I mean, from the moment when the, with the original shuttle crash towards the beginning of the book and him just, he's, <laughs> he's taking all that grief that the colonists are, are giving him and kind of the, the teasing and the, and the, almost bullying really um, to really just still trying to save their lives after that ship had crashed in the lake. Um, and then all the way to the very end of the book where he is about to purposely crash a ship to literally save the day for everybody. And I, I think, yeah, that um, this, this may be one of yeah the best Chekhov stories that we've had because I'm, I'm trying to think even back to like um uh i think there was like a Chekhov sulu story in the lost years books um that if i remember correctly was kind of so so and um but yeah this this Chekhov story is one that i feel like needs to be told more often yeah i know 100 agree with that and i, I wanted to ask you 
What did you think about the romance section uh, with with Gwen and Chekhov? Because I felt like that kind of came out of left field. Yeah, I um, I'm not gonna lie. I had a, I, had tr- I I struggled getting through this book because uh, you know to tip my hand a little bit, this wasn't my favorite book. But um, you know, as far as the like the Chekhov one, the Chekhov parts of the story were really keeping my interest and so when when that part came up especially when uh they're trying to get some sleep and she's trying to get him to come to bed i kind of had to flip back a little bit kind of going what did i miss like where you know where did they come together and um you know i think i think even that kind of speaks to and i put it later in the outline but like just how um how much time is being covered in in this book but also just in this new earth series as a whole um because i kind of got the impression that this has been weeks that they are all out here together and his i hesitate to call her girlfriend but i mean that really was what it was he got got himself a girlfriend um but she's former starfleet so i think that that was uh you know one of the ways that they were able to um relate to each other and probably in this time of crisis and you know whatever like in this situation that they were in was probably how they ended up coming together because you see that in tv and movies all the time where there are these extreme circumstances and the two main characters end up together and it's just like a little bit unrealistic and that was kind of i guess the part of the checkoff story here that i was just kind of like um not as thrilled with but it did add some tension towards the end again when he's about to sacrifice himself um, in the shuttle at the end. And she basically shoves him in the cargo crate to save his life, to sacrifice herself, which ended up, she didn't sacrifice herself anyway. And they ended up having to break up. But so, I mean, it was kind of this weird thing that I don't, I don't feel like it was necessarily shoved in, but I do, I do feel like it kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. I, I think it's one of those things where I, it doesn't have, it doesn't have a lot of resonance in the story because it doesn't do anything. Yeah. You know, um, there isn't anything that, um, it, I, I, it doesn't add anything to the story, um, which I think is, is really strange. Um, and you would expect it to, um, you, you would expect this, you know, Chekhov does mention that, you know, he might come and, and, um, back to this planet and retire. <laughs> um, you know, and and yet, and and Gwen is you know happy to hear that. Yeah. But I I feel like it would have been more interesting for the romance if you're going to add it in to to actually have it mean something to check off. You know, where where it's it's something that is changes his character in some way. Mm. Um, it has some impact, uh, where, whereas here, I just don't see it really having any impact on, on him as a person. Um, it just seems like a thing that happens and, um, I, I wish, um, I wish that had been done better. Yeah. It's almost like he took another page out of Kirk's book and had his romance of the week or something. (laughs) And I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it almost would have been good if if she was somebody who worked on the orbital platform with him and maybe was just kind of, you know, they were already getting to know together. Maybe the romance blossomed as they went through this whole story together rather than kind of meeting in the middle of the tragedy and something happening there. I, I don't know. It's just. Yeah. And, and I agree. I feel like it almost like if 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 she would have almost been the impetus of him growing up i guess for lack of a better term um you know between even star trek the motion picture and star trek 2 um so yeah i just i feel like it's one of those things that probably could have been lifted out of the story and wouldn't have made a huge amount of difference there Mm -hmm. yeah you know i um i do think it's one of those things where it just kind of feels thrown in. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 just doesn't feel as as much a part of the story as you would want it to, um, which I think is is really important. Um, but you know, I I think 
I'm not going to ding it too much. You know, it, it, it does, like you said, I think it feels uh, classic Star Trek in the sense of like what people think Kirk did every episode. <laughs> right. So even though that's not true. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that this book, I think, really does is that obviously these colonists are in a horrible way. Uh, because of everything that's happened to this planet. And this idea of like barbarians at the gate. Um, and I, I Gwen actually says something really, really interesting where she says, you know, I really hate people sometimes. I hate knowing that we can go from a civil civilized Federation citizens to selfish barbarians in six months of setting foot on a new planet. And then Chekhov is thinking, he's like, he says to in his own mind, but I can understand a little better than I used to how easily bar- barbarism can sneak up on you when you feel like you've lost all other options. And I just, this was a really interesting part of the book because I think what it does is it's the same question that we kind of get in DS9 with Paradise Lost. Mm. You know, when you strip away this veneer of society, what's left. And this book is really showing that, I, you know, for some people, there isn't a lot left other than self-preservation. Yeah, and I have to echo her sentiment. Like, I really do hate people sometimes. And, you know, and I, I do think, um, I... I think that the book kind of takes a bit of uh, an extreme view of that between the different groups of people that we see. Um, because, yeah, I mean, within six months, that seems really fast to me to to have all of the people come together to do what they can to preserve as much of the planet as they can in the in the previous book with the quake moon crashing into it. Um, or crashing another moon into the quake quake moon. Um, but it, it seems like they went from, um, idealistic, uh, independent colonists to barbarians, uh, very quickly. I mean, we've already got like abandoned, uh, abandoned towns and we've got, you know, we've within six months, we've already come up with all these, uh, cheeky nicknames for all of the the towns and locations on the planet and everything and it to to so to me the story kind of felt like it kind of rushed the colonists into that to be able to tell this story um but at the same time i feel like it's kind of done a very a, a very star trek thing by kind of analogizing um or or making i guess an allegory to real life by saying um when when we're left to our own devices and we're in terrible circumstances people will resort to whatever means necessary that they can to survive and get ahead and one of the characters that i feel like was um not responsible necessarily but sure sure didn't help was governor sedlak who was the um, governor of this area who really took a hands-off approach to everything. He took a very logical, like, we're only going to step in where we logically can succeed. And so he was unwilling to risk resources to on rescue operations. There was almost an element of, dare I say, fake news of, you know, saying that the the reports of the flooding were um just rumors and that there's just a little bit of light flooding and you know they even acknowledge in the book that Sedlak wasn't necessarily a bad governor because he was taking such a logical approach but he wasn't taking a very human approach <laughs> to this human colony and so i mean i feel like it's just another way of of just showing that if we don't work together we're basically going to be working against each other. If you're not for us, you're against us kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. I like that you brought that up about the governor, because I also found that interesting. Um, 
And this, and and what I think it it kind of showed is, for me, that was one of those places where I really saw. It's almost like the ultra Vulcan, mm-hmm. you know. Like if if we can't help, is it logical to even try? Right. And <laughs> but but I found that to be something that was their way or at least this governor's way of i think what i i found it was like this this governor's excuse for for not doing anything mm-hmm. like he was just using it as excuse um and i i found that really interesting yeah um you know i, I because it it did seem to be you know, it sounds logical and good, um, but but really it's just, it's an easy way to get past, like, having to do anything. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, the fact that, I, this is something I was really struck by, you know, I think... Whatever your core principles are, real are really going to come into play when you when you're pushed to the brink. And you know these these people came here and they they wanted to be free of the shackles of somebody being there for them, uh, and that also some it seems to me that they brought a lot of people with them that don't necessarily have the best intentions <laughs> for being there and it it does turn them into um these these barbarians um does that mean they're they were pushed into an extreme circumstance that they w- obviously weren't expecting and and i just wonder with some of these people and and we had that one character in the first book um i can't remember his name off the top of my head but the the one that was kind of kirk's thorn in his side and had a criminal record and everything and i and i got the impression that other people in this colony were ones who maybe had a little bit of a sullied past and it and it makes me wonder if if the whole issue with the quake moon hadn't happened and this world had been the paradise that they all thought it would be what would this world have looked like what would the people have looked like would these people with the troubled pasts have come together for the greater good of the colonies rather than for their own gain again without without knowing anything about the olivium or anything like that mm-hmm. and um you know, this Governor Sedlak maybe still would have been elected governor of this area, and maybe it wouldn't have been so bad that he took the more logical, hands-off approach. And we had a captain in in that first book, too, that um, was kind of the don't-bother-me-unless-it's-an-emergency kind of guy. And that's almost right. what this governor seems like, too, is just like somebody who wanted to get away from the life that they had before and start something new. And, you know, here, Sedlak's kind of almost, you can almost hear him rolling his eyes going, I just don't want to deal with it. You know, if people came out, they knew what the risks were, they have to deal with that kind of uh, natural selection kind of thinking. Yes. Well, I wanted to ask you this uh, because, to me, this was interesting. There's very few times in a original series era book, um, even movie era, where we don't get the big three. Um, so this book is really about Sulu, Uhura, and Chekhov. And you get some Scotty every once in a while. You get some Rand. Um, but... How did how did that work for you? Do you feel like th- this this book did a good job of you know utilizing the the characters uh, well enough so that you didn't miss uh, you know Kirk, Spock, and McCoy? I think that it actually yeah, worked in this book's favor to have the Enterprise with the big three. <laughs> um, 
kind of out of the picture because it really forced these characters to basically rely on their training and rely kind of like we talked about earlier with Chekhov on uh, everything that they've learned from Kirk and really even in Spock. Um, and I would say that if, if Chekhov had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, Sulu and Uhura weren't very far behind him on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the things, uh, you know, it, it's just one of those, it's, it's one of those stories that you just think when, when it couldn't, po- when things couldn't possibly get any worse, they do. And, um, uh, I would say in about the first half of the book, I wasn't real thrilled, I guess, with how um, how the story was progressing because it, it, it moved pretty slow in the first half of the book with Sulu and Uhura trying to find Chekhov um, and then at various points getting split from each other and then Sulu meets up with Chekhov and Uhura is kind of on her own, like, you know, in the later half of the book. And I actually really liked how things kept getting switched up. Because we actually got to really see Sulu and Uhura working together. We got to see Sulu and Chekhov working together. We got to see Uhura really um, being a good leader in her own right uh, between working with Rand on this communications project, but also even with uh, the other people that, that she was coming in contact with as well. And so just to to get to see these characters really in their own light and um, doing what they do best, I thought was really good. Um, I feel like th- this isn't a, a very long book, but we probably could have cut out some of the Sulu and Uhura stuff. Um, just cause like I said, I-, I felt like it dragged a little at the beginning as they were searching like every town and coming into co- contact with some mm-hmm. horrible situation each place they went. It was, it was starting to kind of just drag on a little bit, but, um, you know, even still, though, I think that their story highlighted their strengths and um, not not to the extent that it did for Chekhov, but it just gave us a good story where we're not just constantly waiting for, you know, the deus ex machina that is Kirk or Spock or the Enterprise for that matter. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of what you just said, and I honestly don't feel like I could add anything to it because I think you rightly pinpointed all the good parts about it and a few of the weaknesses um, with these three characters. But I I think I was really grateful that we actually just got enough. We spent a lot of time with these three characters. And I think like you said perfectly, it is great that the enterprise isn't there to just show up and save the day. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's down to them to use their training to figure it out. And I also like that we found out that it wasn't because they weren't doing things right for communications. It's because they were being jammed. They were being blocked. Yeah. They were, um, you know, uh, these peacemakers had been foiling all the work that they had been doing. And so I think that really worked as well to me. So again, you really just saw how brilliant these people are who work on the Enterprise that aren't the top three. Um, and I think that was really cool. You know, we just don't get a lot of uh, opportunities to, to have that in a story. So to get it here was was pretty great. It's funny, too, because with um, Nichelle Nichols always talk about how tired she got of saying hailing frequencies open. Yet half this book, she's just hailing Sulu the whole time trying to get this right. communications thing to work. But you know, she's so tenacious in this in even before discovering that they're jammed. And then, I mean, she was, she had the wherewithal to basically make sure that she always had this equipment with her so she could continue trying um, and, and finding the right place, you know, especially once they realize, well, if they get up above uh, the storms and the clouds and everything, they can send a message to uh, the control um the control station or whatever to get a message about the flooding that was going to happen. And so, I mean, she was, she never gave up on this thing. She knew that it should work and, um, you know, never let a little problem get in her way of continuing to try to fix it. One of the, the storylines 
uh, here that I thought was really interesting is the choice of a hard life and that the colonists had actually come here on purpose uh, because they wanted a more challenging life, you know, and I think it was really interesting because somebody is talking to Chekhov in there saying, you've got to remember one thing, Commander, is that willingness to take on risk isn't the same as preparedness. And I think we've been talking about that a lot with this series because they were clearly not ready uh, for all that they were going to face. Um, And I think these people are finally learning what it means to live without a safety net. And to me, that's just really, really interesting to see these people, you know, not want to live on the utopia that is Earth at this point. Um, they and, and and to me, that's just a really fascinating choice. And I think a, a really challenging idea then for Star Trek it, itself, um, you know, that there would be people that wouldn't want that. Well, not actually. Yeah, that. I mean, I guess that kind of speaks even to just the human condition of adventure and exploration, which Star Trek is so good about talking about. And, um, you know, even as as you're talking there, it kind of made me think um, back on those first couple books where, you know, there's there was we've gotten a little confused on how, uh, you know, these folks wanted to come to this planet, get away from this u- the utopia of Earth and the safety of the Federation to turn around and basically apply for Federation membership. Um, but just, I guess, what this kind of, um, and even this, this statement that you read from um, whoever it was that is that Gwen that I, said I that? I think this actually is Gwen okay. that says this, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the fact that they're talking about living without a safety net, like, just because they might be members of the Federation at some point doesn't mean the Federation is going to swoop in and save them all the time. Like, they they are purposely trying to figure things out on them on their own um, to a fault sometimes where they are... Um, you know, trying to be a little too independent, you know, when at the beginning of the book, Chekhov is just trying to earn his, his shuttle ride by helping drop off some uh, supplies to the different colony uh, sites. And they're just giving him a hard time. And I think that from the colonists point of view, if they really do want to do this on their own, it's, it it probably is hard for them to constantly have Starfleet people around that probably know the better way to do these things or whatever when they're just trying to make their own lives, make their own mistakes, and, um, you know, get by and really create a colony that's theirs that's not a Starfleet colony, that's not even necessarily a Federation colony per se. Um, it's just their colony, their planet. And um, I I feel like you can kind of respect that a little bit as far as wanting to take on this challenge because, you know, I think to the the movie WALL-E from Pixar where the humans have gotten so uh, lazy in, in their utopia that they're literally just sitting in chairs being fed, watching... TV and movies or whatever. And these people are like, yeah, that's not good enough for us. We want to be out there working with our hands and making a life for ourselves that we can be proud of. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and especially, I think, using like the, the idea of Wally is an example. And I, I think the thing that I was really struck by and, and what is strange to me in a lot of ways is that you just wouldn't have been more prepared. Apparently none of them were Boy Scouts, (laughs) um, which is probably a detriment to them. Um, And I think it's really interesting that we have this perspective. Um, And I think it's also something that connects with the fact that 
with things being more difficult than they anticipated, um, it's exactly what leads to our the conversation we were having earlier with you know the barbarians at the gate idea, um, and so and the two things really kind of go hand in hand because these colonists weren't truly prepared, I think, for what may come at them. Um, and in all honesty, I mean, nobody, I think, would have been truly prepared for what's happened to this planet. Um, I don't I don't know if anybody had that in their mind that this was going to be the planet that they were going to have. One that had been devastated <laughs> and they only can live on half of it. Um, which does kind of make me wonder, too. It, it does seem like a this the way it was described sounded like hell on earth. So I don't know if I would want to stay here. <laughs> yeah, I think if I was one of these colonists, I would be um, saying, you know what? That was my bad. I uh, I want to be on the next ship back to Earth. Uh, you know, like send me up. Up into My space. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hundred percent agree with you. I just feel like, you know, because the cover of the book doesn't make it seem like it's so bad, mm-hmm. but then the way it's described, it sounds like a hellscape. Yeah, I mean, the cover of the book makes it look beautiful, and um, yeah, the whole time reading this book uh, of the sandstorms or the alluvium storms that are like it's literal radiation it's burning their skin they're breathing it in they're swallowing it it's getting in their body yeah they're making things like medicine and and other advancements from the olivium but i think in its raw form i mean nobody wants to be breathing that in and um what i what i actually pictured the whole time i guess as i read it was um uh the opening scenes from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, when we see Khan uh, for the first time, when they're coming in and they're all, like, all Khan and all of his people are are dressed up. They've got masks on, you know, because it's so uh, sandstormy outside. Uh, that's actually the, what, what Khan was wearing in that scene was what I was picturing a lot of them wearing with their dust mufflers and their, yes. and their robes and yes. everything. So, um and at one point, I kind of had to remember that this is like right before Star Trek Two, like within a year or so before that. So it's not like they gave all of this type of equipment, you know, because obviously they didn't even know that SETI Alpha Five had, you know, <laughs> turned into that kind of thing. But, but I mean, it made it made it actually pretty easy to to picture what was going on and easy to realize that yeah, I don't want I don't want anything to do with being there. And then add on top of that all of the issues that they've got between the Carsons, who actually turn out to be um, good people. They're trying to protect the environment as best as they can. They're environmentalists almost, or ecologists or something. Uh, but then uh, the peacemakers and these, these armed bandits, basically, that are creating even more hell on this hell on Earth. Um and um, from between the illegal olivium mining that they're doing, which we find out, you know, is kind of the the whole issue with everything that's going on. They're actually trying to cause floods. Um, but really, these are, these are the desperate people. These are the ones who uh, really kind of turned into barbarians because the, the this was not the trip they signed up for. And so now they are... Uh, kind of doing whatever they can to get as much money, you know, Olivium really as they can to get off the planet and go make a better life for them some themselves somewhere else. No, that's, I mean, the idea of this power and profit and this using, um, uh, this illegal Olivium mining, um, to, to get out of this, um, because, like you said, these these people who had signed up to be there to kind of help with this, to protect, um, they they feel cheated. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel like um, that. Again, this literally isn't what we signed up for. Because you know, 
we had it in our contracts, the amount of hours we should work and all this stuff. And now we're doing so much more. And and what was fascinating to me about this whole thing is is just that they become so barbaric that they are legitimately willing to destroy a whole almost a whole civilization mm-hmm. like it it's insane to me that 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 they've fallen this far yeah and i I appreciate too at the end of the book the one good thing I guess that comes out of it is is this floodplain, you know, which the peacemakers were kind of saying, like, whose dumb idea was it? Like, we've told them not to build settlements in this floodplain. Like, it was just a matter of time. And and they even were able to calculate, right. it's going to be a long time, but, like, why would they create their settlements in a literal floodplain? And so after, you know, the events of this story... I, I think it was Sedlak was like, oh, yeah, the most logical solution is to not, you know, build settlements there anymore. Right. It's like, well, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's flooded. Of course, you don't want to do that. But the extent that they went to to do this, it was just, I want to say unconscionable. But again, I guess I go back to the fact that some of these settlers, these colonists, were people who were trying to find a different life for themselves. And some of them may have come from uh, troubled pasts to begin with. And I feel like these potentially could be, I mean, these, I don't want to like cast judgment on them, but I mean, some of them seem like they could be people who would have maybe done this anyway on uh, another planet. And maybe this is something that they're, they can do well because they have done it before. Um, But it could also just people be people who are at their wits end, with the way things are and um you know are just <laughs> want so desperately for a better life that they're willing to basically do these uh, to yeah mass murder all these settlers and just try to justify it by saying well they shouldn't have built their homes there and you know and then flying off to who knows where to to settle on a different planet or you know, and I, I know that there's even um, thoughts, well, are were they being, uh, um, were they working with the called or the blood or the Klingons or the Romulans or, you know, whoever it was like, and it was no, it was really just, these are desperate people in desperate times and, um, you know, kind of taking drastic measures to get what they feel like they need to do something else and you know like i i see this and i'm like well if the colony stays here there's you know the peacemakers are maybe gone now at the end of this book but somebody else is probably just going to rise up in their place um you know we've we've seen how things kind of ebb and flow on earth it's going to be the same there too like there might be some uh, periods of relative peace and um, everyone kind of coming together for the greater good. But from the beginning of this book, we saw that the actual weather patterns on this planet were like we, this story took place during the sandstorm season or whatever. And I think there was like a rainy season that was going to be coming at some point because the, when they destroyed the quake moon, um, it really messed up like all the weather patterns on this on this side of the planet. So, I mean, I'll like, I kind of just wonder what's going to happen next, you know, next year when there's another bad weather season, like who's going to, who's going to be rising up to do bad then. This whole thing was pretty fascinating to me. And, um, I think, you know, one of the things that it did a good job was of, it's just talking to human nature, you know, and we saw the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of human nature in this book, especially when pushed to the brink. And that human nature, without any, you know, guiding principles, um, comes to ruin. You know, we're willing to kill each other 
if we think that's going to be good for us. And so I, I think that this book really pushed to the brink. And, and I, Chris and I say this on the orb all the time about Deep Space Nine, but it's about challenging the idea of Star Trek. It's about challenging the ideals of the Federation when push comes to shove. In the same way, you know, we saw with Deep Space Nine with the war and and all of those type of things. And and I think this book is doing the same thing, you know, except that these aren't Starfleet officers we're watching. These are just previous Federation members, uh, you know, um, citizens. And, you know, um, they don't hold to the same things that, you know, our Starfleet officers are required to by their oath. Um, And I think we see in this book what happens when they don't it's it could be terrifying um and so yeah i'm i'm really interested casey uh, through talking about this what would you rate rough trails i I struggled to come up with a rating on this uh, because uh, I had a rough time reading Rough Trails. It was uh, a slower burn for me. Um, I gave it a two on Goodreads, more because I felt like it was, I'd say, like say two and a half communications frequencies that Uhura is trying. Um, after our discussion today, though, I actually could feel my rating going back up because I, as, as I read this book, I wanted so bad to really just love it and 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 be diving into it but um part of like part of my brain was just kind of going back to the i don't know how long this is taking you know like i don't know how how do we already have abandoned settlements here like how how long has passed since they've been here and that's one of the things i liked even in in the uh, the previous book, Belterre, was the countdown kind of nature of the book. So you really got a good feel for uh, the time that was passing. And I wish this one had something like that because it, it it made it feel like this book took place over like two days. But when you really come down to it, I mean, I think this book probably took place over weeks. Um, and then obviously there's like a six-week gap uh, between – last two chapters with the last chapter really being more of an epilogue kind of a, a teaser really for the next book. But um, I, I'd say for now I'll settle on my, my two and a half rating with a potential future read uh, going up. But uh, yeah. What about you? How, how did you uh, come in? I came down at a three. And because I can't discount anything that you said, um, but I, I think I was just responded a little bit better to the book really taking seriously what they had done to this place in the previous book and more of, I think, a realistic take on what, what it would look like. And... Yeah, it was a tough book to read, but I also feel like, you know, I don't know if if you've seen 1883, um, uh-uh. but, you know, uh, pioneers making their way across the prairie was a horrendous and terrible journey. You know, people died all the time. Yeah. Terrible things were happening. So, I mean, this this felt very realistic and i and i think sometimes the reason people might not respond to this book is the realism in it which is you know they don't really take a shortcut or give it any kind of easy button yeah for this which it it can be frustrating because we're kind of used to an easy button in star trek so um but it's still it's not as good as beltaire was um, and it's a little bit better, I think, than the first book, but not by much. And so, you know, hoping that the the series will continue to to kind of grow and get better as we move on into that fourth book. 
Well, we are halfway through the New Earth series. Last time we finished the 24th century books. And next time, I'm actually really excited because we are going to be revisiting Enterprise. Not even Star Trek Enterprise, but Enterprise. So I'm, I'm uh, you know, looking forward to getting into our next adventure there. Yeah, I'm actually very excited about that as well. Um, I have not read many of the early Enterprise books, and um, so I figured it was time for us to kind of go back and do that, and I can't wait for us to get to that. But Casey, um, before we do, if people want to catch up with you, where are the other places that they can find you? Yeah, you can find me on Goodreads, Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram at Knitting Trekkie. You can find me on Facebook in the Babel Conference, and you can find me on a podcast called Mickey's Marvels, where we talk about everything under the Disney umbrella. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, you can find me all over the place uh, under social media at MattRushing02. Uh, you can also find me You can also find me here on the network doing a bunch of shows, uh, The Orb, Warp 5, Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. Um, so Warp 5 uh, is about Star Trek Enterprise, uh, The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and uh, Saddle Up. Of course, uh, we are going to be diving into Strange New Worlds, which very excited to do that. Oh, and The Unofficial Tango is about Star Trek Picard, and we're wrapping up uh, Season 2, which I can't believe, and I'm, I'm, I'm not ready for it. No. I'm not ready for it, but I'm kind of ready for it at the same time, so I can't wait. And of course, uh, you can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network with two shows. Did Outpost with Drea Kaufman, where we talked about uh, Harry Potter each and every week, uh, one chapter at a time. And that is a completed show. So hope you'll enjoy that. And then Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars. But of course, as always, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.